This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, welcome to Journey, Journey to Unity, number four. So tonight's pasuk is the pasuk of Darsha Tzemer Ufishtim Vataz Bechefetz Kapeha. So first, let me explain what this means. But I do have to say that tonight's concept, the idea tonight, we're going to start way out on left field. Okay, so just excuse me for like a minute as we like start m- marching our way towards home plate. And as we go along the way, I hope to be able to lay out for you why I think it is that most couples um, fight, like why people fight so much. Like we'll try to unpackage that tonight and realize like what, what is the core issue behind most arguments in most people's relationships. So let's start from a distance. Darsha, Tzemer, Ufishtim. It's also interesting about it because a lot of people, I think, I could say for myself, um, you know, as we, we sing this every Friday night, I have no idea what we're singing. I don't, I don't, at least I didn't like, as I'm going through the book, I'm like, oh, that's what I'm talking about. Cause you know, like you sing the words, you think, you know what you're talking about. So what does this mean? Darsha Tzemaru Fishnim, that in Asia style, she seeks out wool and linen. And her hands willingly do the work that needs to be done. So what is the work that needs to be done? So traditionally, back in the Altaheim, they would be weaving, right? So women would get wool and linen and all these other stuff, and she would be sitting in her house with her loom, and she would be working all day, right? Making clothing for her husband or children, knitting sweaters, whatever. And she would do it. And how would she do it? With her hands. So that's what the Patsuk is saying. That this woman goes out and gets the wool, and she comes home, and she knits. So it sounds like this has absolutely nothing to do with us. But... If I wanted to speak about three concepts, which are actually very practical, and we'll go through a few d- different of the midrashim to like, and the nice kalim over there, sort of to like understand exactly what we're talking about. So the Masur the explains this pasuk as follows. He says, traditionally, the way it worked was as follows: you had the man and you had the woman. So the man's job essentially was that he went out to work. He was a meicher or a seicher. He bought, he sold, and he therefore would go out to the marketplace. He would come back with like you know, wool, linen, whatever it was. And he would say to his wife, hi, honey, I'm home. And she would be like, yay, I'm so excited. And he would put down in the corner all of the wool or linen and she would sit there and she would take it as a step two and she would weave whatever needed to be woven for the family. So what is this Pasuk saying? Saying that sometimes the husband was a little bit delinquent in his side of the equation. So he would go out, hang out with his friends, be eating Challenge at three o'clock in the morning on a Thursday night because he needs it because he's all whatever. Friday comes, the kids are like, Mommy, I need socks for Shabbos. And the mother's like, <laughs> Tati wasn't around yesterday, was he? No, he wasn't. So instead of standing on ceremony, she would run out to the marketplace herself, get the raw materials that she needed to produce the socks for the kid for Shabbos. So Darsha Tsemeru Fishim, she would go out on her own without making a big, huge deal about the fact that her husband was out late the night before and he was, you know, eating gapchik and whatever. She wouldn't mention it whatsoever. She would just do what she needed to do, come home, do what she needed to do. She went then she went beyond what she needed to do. And that's an Asia's Chayel. So that's the first concept. So the stuff it says that even though the husband did not do what he needed to do, she not only does what she needs to do, but she goes beyond and she actually covers for him. She's not disappointed, doesn't make a big deal, just does it. That's it. There's a, a book, probably one of 80 or 90 books that he wrote, Rabbi Abraham J. Tversky. I remember picking it up. It was on, it was on, it was like Ask the Rabbi type of book. And it was amazing to me how 
nearly the entire book had different questions, but they were all the same exact question. The question basically was, um, you know, it, it annoys me that when I go upstairs at night, my spouse never remembers to turn off the lights. Like, how do I deal with that? Or it annoys me that like my spouse with carpool doesn't pick up the kids on time. Like literally the whole book was about like people writing in complaining about their spouse. And it was fascinating to me how every single answer come out in the entire book was the same answer. So then go do it yourself. That was his answer. His answer was, oh yeah, okay, so then you should get out of bed and go downstairs and close the light. Oh, oh yeah, so then you should go pick up your children and you should do that. Like, literally throughout the whole book, his answer was, oh, oh yeah, okay, fine. So step up and do it. And I was like, oh, like what, what's going on over here? It seems almost like a trick. This, this is the trick. The trick is, is that a spouse, a person, rather than sitting there trying to figure out how to change your spouse and, and tell them how they did something wrong and how to word it that the criticism is not so critical and uh, I language, you language, just stop it. Just step up to the plate. You see something's missing, go do it. That's the idea. That's, it's not me, by the way. This is the Mitsuda stuff. He's explaining, this is what it means. We sing this every Friday night. Your husband sings this to you, right? He doesn't know what he's singing, but this is essentially what he's singing. He's saying, thank you for covering for me for the times that I couldn't be there. And like we said in the beginning, this is gender, gender neutral. So you're, you're sort of think, saying to him, thank you very much for covering me for me for the times that I couldn't be there for you. And it's just a great skill in marriage. Not always do you have to figure out how to tell your spouse that they did something wrong. Sometimes you could just simply say, wow, something's lacking here. Just get it done. Stop telling the other person why they're doing something wrong. Just step up to the plate. That's, that's the first idea. The second idea is that... <laughs> If you look in the words, it's an interesting terminology. It says, Vatas which means that her hands willingly do their work. Now, if I would say to you, like, how would you, I mean, obviously this is very poetic, but I would say to you, like, how would you word this pasuk? Like a woman goes out and she buys wool and she makes the wool. You would say she buys wool, she makes the wool. What does this mean? Vatas like, her hands do the will of the hands, like her hands. It's very poetic. I mean, that you got to, you have to give it. But what does it mean? Like her hands do their will. They, they execute according to their will. So this is sort of like step two, which is that a lot of people, they, they do what they do. And they're very, they do it very begrudgingly. Okay. I think that one of the key elements, I think women have this meetup more than men, is that they almost never want to tell their spouse what they want from them. They always like hint it or allude to it or ask a question. And like, it's like going like over the person's head, like, like a fighter jet, like they don't have what's going on. And they're like, Oh, where were you? Or what was that? Or do you hungry? Like, and they're like trying to like allude to the fact like, Oh, you forgot the onions today. You know what I'm saying? Instead of like saying it, there's always like this like convoluted. Now, why is it that people do that? They do that specifically because they don't want favors. Most people in most relationships are not interested in favors. So what we do is we try to like draw it out from their, from our spouse to like get them to hop like, oh, I did something wrong or, or, or I should take the initiative or, oh, I, I didn't buy you jewelry in a while or, oh, you probably needed a card or whatever. We usually try to draw something out so that it's given over with love. The concept over here is that if I would say to you, I have a new job for you. Your job is going to be to sit in a house that, has no air conditioning and no heating, okay? It's, it's made out of wood that was put together by a lumberjack. It's freezing, it's boiling. And the only real thing you have in the house is not a stove. You don't have water, running water. You don't have plumbing. You don't have any of that. But you have a loom, 
Okay. So here's going to be your job for the next 50 years of your life. You're going to sit in the middle of your room every day and you're just going to be working the loom and working the loom and working the loom so that your children have clothing and your husband has clothing. And then they come back with the rib clothing. You're going to give them new clothing. And you're going to do this every day for the rest of your life. Most of you be like, are you kidding me? Like, that's my life. That sounds miserable. The concept over here, according to the Eben Ezra, is that this woman, this Aisha's Chayel, she goes about her day with Simchas Hachayim for everything that she has in her life. Even though her lot in life is to be sitting there working the loom for 12 hours a day, that is exactly where she sees her tafkid. She sees her tafkid in the fact that she's looming. She sees her tafkid in her carpool. She sees her tafkid in taking her baby to the doctor. She sees her tafkid in all of the work that she needs to do. And she does it. This is the purpose I have hands is to, to be on the loom. The purpose I have a car is to take my children to the doctor. Literally, the purpose why I have everything in my life is to fulfill the things that my family needs. And therefore, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. That's, that's my topic. That's my, that's my life. They don't do it begrudgingly. They don't come home and say, you know what I had to do today? I had to carpool and pick up the kids. And this one was screaming. It was so noisy. No, no, no. You don't hear a peep from any of that. Because the attitude is, Vatas, I did this. I wanted to do this. I got up in the morning excited to do this. Why were you excited? Because this is the task of me helping my family grow and learn and daven. I'm building a house over here. You know, many years ago, my grandmother, she passed away a couple of years ago, Bubby Susie. I mentioned her a couple of times. She was just like an iconic woman, like the matriarch of our family. For You know, she passed away. She was turning 99 years old. I think it's actually, her, it would have been her birthday like today or a couple of days ago. Like she was in February, the beginning of February. Bubby Susie, when she came to America, she had nothing. I'm talking nothing. She didn't have a penny to her name. And when she came to her first job, she came in there. And she, she said to the guy, can you hire me? Eh. And the guy said, yeah, um, I'll, I'll give you a job working. I think the number was $24 a week. That was, that was, that was what he was offering, okay, $24 a week, not $24 an hour. And like what it's like $95 an hour, but that's what he was offering, $24, $24 a week. And she said, okay. And they were like working out all the thing. And the guy said, she was like making a cheshman if she could even live on that. And then she was like, okay, I can make it by, fine, no problem. And then at the end, the guy said, and by the way, like, you're here, Shabbos. And she was like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, you have to be here. Everybody here works on Shabbos, not even a question. And she was like, no, not Shabbos. Like, I'll come in Sunday, but he's like, no, it's not negotiable. Shabbos, Yantif, you're here. And she was like, I'm really sorry, I can't take the job. And she stood up and started walking out. And she said, the guy said to her in Yiddish, when you're going to be hungry, you'll come back here. Don't worry. The job is still waiting for you. When you're hungry, you'll come back. And she said, get a good look at this face. You're never going to see this one again. She walked out the front door. And she, she, she had, you know, she had a certain spunk there. You get a good look at this face. You're never going to see this face again. And she took a different job, which did not make her come in on, on Chavez. I believe she was making $4 instead of $24. Okay. You could imagine like literally taking like an 80% pay cut. Okay. Now at the same time, when her children were born, so she had three children, and her neighbors, who were all from everything, they said, how could we survive if we're sending our kids to yeshivas? It's impossible. 
So instead, they sent their kids to public school. And Sunday, they had a mechanech, whatever it was, but their kids were not in yeshiva. Not Bobby Susie. She was like, no, my kids are going to regular yeshiva. And it came to the yeshiva they, that she applied to. They rejected her. They said, no, you're not, you're not like as yeshivish as we want. You know, you don't fit our criteria. So she went in there and they had like a board of people who would like interview you and then they would accept or reject you. And they said, you're just not our type. I'm really sorry. And she stood up and she said, listen, for you to take somebody from a Meyuchistika family, somebody who has your look and your mindset and your everything, it's like a hospital that only treats healthy people. You take my kids and you turn them into B'nai Taira, like that's a good yeshiva. And they were like, oh, nobody ever spoke back to us like this. And they took her in. They took, you know, my, my parent and my mother and, you know, her siblings and they took them in. And all the generations of from people that came out of that, those two decisions, right? This one woman's courage was amazing. And all those dairy dairies that we have until today, every single person, Shemr Shabbos, and, and all the things that people are doing was because of those two moves. And if you could put them together, not only was she making 80% less salary, but she was also had this extra expense of sending her kids to yeshiva, which she was paying for, right? Unbelievable, those two things, those two moves literally changed generations. Now, if you'd say to her, right, when she's sitting there working for $4 an hour, how does it feel to be working here? You have any like resentment that you're not sitting there working, you know, the high life, you know, working, getting $24, you know, $24 a week? What do you think now? There wasn't even a havamina to her that that was the job for her. There was a simcha that I know I'm building something. I, I, it's real to what I'm having. This concept, means we oftentimes lose sight of the bigger picture, the fact that we are parents. We're not the children anymore. We're married. We're, we're not just raising ourselves. We're raising the next generation. As part of raising the next generation is an understanding that what you're putting into your children is, A, is part of our tafkid in this world. And I'm going to say it a little bit deeper, is that the simchas hachayim that you put into your house is something that the kids will not get anywhere else. Literally just having simcha in your house because you realize that like, hey, even though, yes, you can't get up and down the nine in the morning, it's impossible to traffic. And yes, your kids, you know, this one needs this therapy and speech therapy. And all, of course, yeah, we, we, we get it. All those things that we have going on. But you do it with simcha. You understand that like, hey, this is my role. This is my tafkid. That is vatas dechevetz kapah. A person's attitude as to what they have going on in their life and appreciation for what they have, that's the second idea. And the third idea is as follows. So the Medrash says that who is this Pasuk speaking about? So the Medrash goes through each Pasuk of Eshaz Chayel and it tells us a certain personality. And it says, this is talking about Sarah. This is talking about Rivka, Rachel, Leh. Everyone is one. Which Pasuk is this talking about? Which personality? So it says, this is Leah. Why? Because Leah greeted Yaakov, the, the Medrash says, the saver panim yafes. And because of that, she was zaycha that her offspring, she got four things. She got kings, malachim, neviim, nesiim, and Tyra. Okay, pretty nice, right? Like, Leah greeted her husband, the saver panim yafes. She was in a good mood. Nice. And therefore, she was zaycha to like unbelievable stuff, right? David, all the king, everybody, you know, Yehuda, the whole shape of Yehuda came from, right? Yisachar, the whole shape of Tyra came from her. Like, why? Because she greeted the Savior upon him, Yavis. And the Medrash alludes to a story. But if you look into the story, you see that it wasn't so simple what she did. 
So the story, which you probably know, but there's probably an element of the story that you don't know, is a story where after Leah has a few of her children, so there's two sisters here. Leah, who's having baby after baby after baby, and Rachel, who's not having any babies. And we all know the famous story that Yaakov was, he worked for seven years and he was supposed to marry Rachel, and then he, he ended up marrying Leah. And the Pusik says that one day, it's the springtime, and Ruvain, Leah's oldest son, goes out, and he picks Dudaim. Dudaim are like little nothings. They're free. They just grow. They're like wild flowers that grow. And he starts coming home to bring them to his mother as a little token, like, ma, I was thinking about you. I think, it's, I think at this point he was six years old. So a six-year-old boy is out in the field. He sees some dudam. He finds it. And he goes over to Leah, his mother, and he says, hi, ma, I got you some flowers, right? And as he comes home, so Rachel steps in and says to Leah, can I have those flowers? Okay. Now, don't forget the dynamic over here. The dynamic is, is that Yaakov worked for all these years and he was supposed to marry Rachel. And at the end, Lavan went ahead and switched and Leah became the wife, right? And Leah says something which was very interesting. And I remember learning this Pasuk many years ago and it struck me as very odd. And then I found the Pshat, which is going to blow your mind. So so Leah says to Rachel, ishi? Is it not enough that you stole my husband? This is what Leah says to Rachel. It's not enough that you stole my husband? You also want to take my, my child's wildflowers? Now, hold on a second. That doesn't make any sense because we all know that if anybody stole anybody's husband, Leah was the one that stole the husband. But over here, Leah says, it's not enough that you, Rachel, stole my husband. You also want to steal these dudaim? Now, what's Rashad in that puzzle? A weird puzzle, no? What does that mean? Never th- I mean, you're not Mavisadra, but like, what does that mean, right? What does that mean? So I, I did some, like, looking into this, and I found a, a crazy answer. The answer is, is that Leah never knew that she was the one that stole Rachel's husband. She never knew. You say, how is that ever possible, right? Everybody, everybody knows. The whole world knows, right? It's right in the Pasuk. But if you look around, some of the Midrashim say that Yaakov came and he worked for all these years. And he had this deal with Lavan that he was going to work for Rachel, right? But he was nervous because he knew that Lavan was a swindler. So he said to Rachel the whole time, he said, hey, Rachel, listen, here's the deal, okay? Um, I know your father is going to pull some shtick. I know it. I know it. So under the chuppah, I'm going to give you some simanim, right? Some signs. What were those signs? You think it was like some handshake, you know, like fist bump, right? So some of the Midrashim explain that the signs that he gave was he taught her halacha. He said, I'm going to teach you halacha. I'll give you a share every day. And by knowing halacha, nobody here knows anything. Under the chuppah, I'll say, hey, by the way, what's the halacha in this and this in this case? And you'll give me the answer. So you'll be the only one here who knows the answer. When Rachel realized she was going to be switched for Leah, she sat Leah down. She said, listen, Leah, getting married to this guy is very religious. Your marriage is not going to go very well unless you know halacha. All these years, I was his chavrusa. Let me teach you some things. So she went and she sat down with Leah and taught her all these halachas. They're standing under the chuppah. Leah's standing there, knows nothing of nothing. And Yaakov turns to her and he says, by the way, right, what's the halacha? If you have a five-cornered baguette, do you need to wear tzitzis or not? And Leah's like, well, you know, according to the shah, you know, this is the halacha. And they had like a little back and forth. And he goes, wow, learned lady. Okay, sounds like this is Rachel. She really knows her stuff. And the pastor says, only in the morning he realized, oh my gosh, I was swindled. But Leah never hopped. Leah never hopped. So she's like, 
what is going on here? My husband's not really liking me. Oh my gosh. He has eyes for my sister, Rachel. And then a little bit later, he marries Rachel and he loves Rachel and he hates Leah. So Leah has this inborn hate, hatred for Rachel, not knowing the whole time that she was the one who stole Rachel's husband. And that's why when it comes to this Pasuk, she gets into a massive fight with her. Are you crazy? Do you know what you just did to me? You ruined my life. I had the perfect husband, the perfect everything. And you come along, some sister-in-law, younger sister-in-law pops in over here, gets married to him. He's, he's, he's crazy about you. He doesn't like me. She was, she was so mad at her. She was screaming at her. It's not enough that you stole my husband all these years. You need to take everything I have, these little trinkets. So they say, so Rachel says, doesn't tell her. She says, okay, I hear you. You have a good taina. Fine. So I'll switch with you. Every night Yaakov's in another tent. Tonight he'll be in your tent and let's make this trade. So Leah's like, okay. So suffice it to say that that day, Leah had a pretty bad day. She just had the first confrontation with her sister after about seven years of jealousy, anger, resentment. She was furious with her. They finally have this face-to-face confrontation and she's ready to explode. And what did she, like, what was her big, her big like, consolation prize? Was that her son's flowers were, were, were taken. And instead, that night, Yaakov was in her tent. She was in a pretty bad mood. So Medris is telling us a fascinating idea. Is that, you know why she was Zaycha? To, like, literally become Malchus Beis David, Tyra, everything you can imagine she got on this night. Because she overcame and broke her teva. She worked on herself to the point where it was not natural. It wasn't just that she swung open there was like, hi, how are you? No. She greeted Yaakov with that same smile that Yaakov had no idea what was going on. He like walks in. Yaakov knew about this whole, this whole story that Rachel and Leah were switched. But Yaakov had no idea that there was just massive blow up that just occurred in their house. And he's like, wow, you're in such a chipper mood today. She's like, yeah, hey, great to see you. Everything's wonderful. And that's the concept over here. Is that Darshat Semaru Fishnim that, and the Malbim explains this a little further. The Malbim says that a person has an option of putting their midos on like clothing, meaning that you take it on and you take it off, right? Where it's temporary. Or a person has the ability to, to work on their midos to the point where it's like your own hands. It's a part of who you are. And if you want to put these two together in a certain sense, you could say that Leah wasn't just like this one-time event. She was somebody who through the years had mastered her emotion to the point where when she had a bad day, the minute she saw her husband, new face, I'm here. Why? Because now I'm married. Whatever I had going on outside has nothing to do with my husband. I don't have a right to drag down this relationship based on the fact that my boss yelled at me or I got stuck in the rain or I missed the train today or I had a hard day because of carbon. I don't have a right to do that because the emotions in the house, the temperature in the house is up to you, each and every one of us, whether it's a husband or a wife, you set the temperature in the home. With my own children, a lot of times, you know, people get very excitable. A lot of times I teach my kids, there's like a concept of emotion. Imagine you have nest thermostats all around your house, right? Imagine one of those nest thermostats, somebody cranks it up to 90 degrees. The whole house gets very hot. 
So certain times I'll say to my kids, listen, I hear you, you know, you have something to say, no problem. As soon as like we come down to like 70 degrees and like everything's perfect, we could talk about whatever you want. But from a young age, we have to train ourselves, ourselves, forget our children for a minute, ourselves, that like our temperature in our home, it has no right to go above a certain degree. It doesn't. Why not? Because you're affecting everybody else in the house. Just simply by that attitude, by those emotions, by being angry, by being down, we don't have a right to do that. And it has to become part of us that it's like not even a big deal. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I had a lot going on, but it's not a big deal. Emotional regulation unlocks depths within relationships. Now, why do most fights happen? I'll tell you why most fights happen. Imagine if you're driving your car and in the back seat of your car is a five-year-old kid, whether it's your kid or somebody else's kid, and they scream out from the back seat. They go, hey, you're driving too fast. Slow down. Most people will be like, okay, shameful, all right? Turn on the music and you just keep going, right? Now, imagine you're driving that same car and your spouse turns to you and they lean over and they go, hey, you're driving too fast. Could you slow down? What happens then? All of a sudden, like, it's like everything that's dark. All of a sudden, it's like a horror film. Why? Why all of a sudden did everything change? The five-year-old said something and your spouse said something. Why is it so different now? Why is this the beginning of like a six-hour fight and silent treatment and everybody's angry and upset and bringing in the mother-in-laws and great-grandmothers? Like, how did that happen? Why do these, why do, why do we go down those paths? I'm going to tell you why. Because marriage, the essence of marriage is kesher. And kesher means that there's two people that are connected to each other. Because of that, of course, we're connected with our children. There's no question. But because of the horizontal relationship in marriage, we oftentimes have a hard time disassociating from our own emotional needs and expectations. So therefore, when your spouse says something to you, the first thing, how do you talk to me like that? Watch your tone. You didn't compliment me this morning. You forgot to do this yesterday. All of a sudden, our own needs jump into the fray and we're like, hold on, this is not just a random person that I'm disassociated. I don't expect anything from my kids. I don't expect to walk into a room and my kid says, ooh, la la, daddy, you look so nice today. I don't expect that. I don't expect that from most people, but you know what I'm saying? You don't expect that. You don't expect that from your child. There's just a dis... I don't expect anything. My kid's not supposed to pick up the laundry. He's not supposed to do carpool. He's not supposed to make supper. I have zero expectation. So my kid makes a comment like, nice, Shafila, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Go back to sleep. Go back to whatever you're doing. There's, there's no expectation there. So our emotions, to regulate your emotions on a person like that, very easy. When it's somebody where there's an expectation that they're going to fulfill your emotional needs, all of a sudden you start thinking, whoa, 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 one second. You talked to me like that? When was the last time you talked to me like that? Oh, yeah, three weeks ago you spoke to me like that. We start associating all the negativity. We start realizing all of the other things that were not being met by this person. And then it's just off to the races. It's just like, oh, yeah, I should slow down. And how do you drive? Right. The second they start jumping on that bandwagon, we're usually we're usually right behind that that person on that bandwagon. I think that the key over here is that if you'd ask me why most couples fight, it's because there's like a three-minute moment where we don't necessarily realize that we're getting onto this roller coaster. Like we're slowly sitting down and buckling ourselves in and pulling down the thing. 
and we're like giving the thumbs up, we're ready to take off, but we don't realize that it's happening. There's three minutes where our like emotions, they just take over. And then once we're on that ride, it's very hard to actually get off of that. And I, I like to think that probably one of the greatest skills for any marriage is what I call the initial contact of a husband and wife. The daily initial contact, if a couple puts those, I'll call them three minutes. You want to say five minutes, but I'll say three minutes. If those three minutes get off to a good start, there's a very good chance. And I don't mean a good start like I don't see you for three minutes. I mean like a good start where there's like real positivity. Everybody's in a good mood. How was your day? How you doing? Here's supper. Like, like I'm saying like emotionally regulated. There's a very good chance you just got yourself like three hours. There's like a good exchange rate on that. If those three minutes go off to a bad start, there's a very good chance that your next few hours are off to a really, really, really bad start. I remember after, I, after we got married, so I was learning in Kolo and my wife was working in the old city in Yerushalayim. And there was one day that I came home, I walked home and unbeknownst to me, my wife's whole job, the internal like systems that they had, they like fired a bunch of people. They brought in some other people. They changed over all the systems. And she was going through a very, 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 very hard day. A very hard day. I didn't know this. I'm like happy-go-lucky guy learning at Colel. No worries in the world. No mortgage. No nothing. And like I walk home. And I had like a 20-minute walk home. I walk in the door. And the, our apartment had like one of these locks where like almost like a, like a, like a, they have that in like hotels where like you close it. And then like, if you open the door, it like catches and then you have to like close it over. Okay. Anyways. So I, I'm about to walk in the door and I swing the door open and it catches on this lock. And like, I stick it in like my eye. I'm like, Hey, I'm home. And I was like, okay. And she comes, she, she closes the door. She unlocks the lock. She opens the door and she is not in a good mood. Like she opens the door and I see, she's just like, not in a good mood. I was like, Oh my gosh. And she sees my face for like a second. It just like dropped like, Oh my gosh. Like, it's not in a good mood. And my wife's like, hold on one second. She closes the door, locks it. I hear like jumping. She's doing jumping jacks. Okay. <laughs> and then if you know my life, you know, you know, right? She unlocks the door. She's like, you're home. Awesome. Great to see you. How is Yeshiva today? And I was like, oh, it's awesome. And it was like an amazing moment. We are literally hours upon hours. We all know, we've all been down there, right? Hours upon hours of, oh no, dragging and heavy and schleppy. Literally the ability to start your day on a high is one of the greatest things you can do for yourself. And I wanted to say as follows, two things, okay? For women, okay? Why is it so important for women? Why is it important for men? Because part of a woman's, I would say, primary role in a relationship is that a man usually struggles with stepping outside of himself and connecting to his wife. And most women, when they realize that something's off, they're like, hello, don't you realize something's off? Like, don't you realize we don't spend time? Don't you realize you didn't get me anything? Don't you realize like you didn't write me a card or a note? That's usually what women are trying to like communicate to their husband. Don't you realize that you are disassociated? Look back at your last 50 arguments. I guarantee you 49 of them had to do with the fact that your spouse you felt was disassociated from you. I guarantee you. Okay. One second. I'll ask a question in a second. Okay. And, uh, uh. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah, I, I, I guarantee you 49 of that had to do with that and probably the 50, 50th one had to do with somebody's parents, okay? Almost guaranteed that that's how it was, okay? There's a disassociation and you're like, hello, don't you realize? Like, I don't understand. Where are you? Out to lunch? And the chasen classes never got a chasen. That's where like all of those things happen. But if you ask yourself the question, am I really getting my emotional needs met by the way that I'm reacting? Am I really gonna get it? Is this guy gonna now tune into me more 
because of what I just did or what I just said? The answer almost always is unequivocally no, he won't. You just chased him away even more. He, now he's going dis- to disassociate even more. Now he's going to find a later minion from Mayrev, they dive in 16 Mayrevs. He's going to find so many things to keep him out of harm's way because he's not stupid. And he knows that the minute he walks in the door, he's going to get it over his head again and again and again. If you want to actually bring out from your spouse what you want from them, you have to make the ability to connect. You have to foster that connect connection. The environment in your house has to be prone to actual connection. It, it can't be that he's not getting the message. He, oftentimes he is getting the message, but he's getting the message under fire. And it's very hard for a person to step out of themselves when they don't feel that they're able to do that. And for men, I think that this is a very strong function of, of masculinity. The ability to disassociate from your own needs and be able to rise above and basically say to yourself, even though I have all these things going on, and even though my life is in a bad mood, and even though I'm sort of under fire right now, I'm able to disassociate at this moment. Probably one of the greatest things that a man can bring to his relationship, that his wife knows that he is the rock that she can lean on. And I guarantee you, as women sitting around this table and listening on Zoom, there have been so many times where you said to yourself, I, I just wish that my husband would not react right now. I just wish I could just say all these things and he'll just be like, oh, wow, you had a hard day. As opposed to him jumping onto that bandwagon and being like, oh, this is terrible. And what are we doing about this? And you're like, that's not what I need right now. I just need, I just need, I just need a gavra. I just need somebody that could just be there and be strong and just be like, wow, that was tough. Because that's what we need. We need to rely on that, on that person. So these two elements over here, the ability I mean, it's really three elements. First is the ability to take the initiative when things are not being done. Two is the idea of bringing simple into your home and regulating the overall um, temperature in our house. And even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, realizing that the greatest way for us to get our emotions met, our emotional needs met, is by down, like tuning down our emotions, not by killing the other person, but by allowing it to come forth. That's, I know we started with like Darsha Tzemer Ufishtin. That's this woman who's sitting at home and she's, you know, what it's called? Like, you know, she's, she's looming. Is that what it's called? Looming? She's looming on the loom. Okay. She's weaving on the loom, probably. Yeah. She's weaving on the loom. Um, from there, we come out with like such practical understanding of how to take our marriage to the next level. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.